You're listening to audio from Kingsway Christian Church. If you'd like to check out more resources or donate to this ministry, please visit kingswaychurch.org. Well, good morning, everybody. You guys are lively. It's really good to be here with you today. I'm Matt Nickerson. Welcome to Kingsway. Everybody watching online, welcome. We're glad to be here with you. Maybe you're watching later in the week or later this year, whatever it is. We just want to welcome everybody today. We're almost done with our series, Reverse the Curse. We began on Easter. For those of you visiting or maybe watching right now, you will get way more out of this sermon if you go back and watch these messages back to Easter 2018 on April 1st in order, but whatever, you'll get enough out of today without that. And on Easter, I started with this little box and I I said, this little box represents so much of our lives because we pack everything up and we just keep taking it with us to house to house. We get to the next house. We, you know, things, certain things are easy. These cups go up here and these, you know, clothes go over here. But then we find that one box and you go, well, I don't know what to do with that. And life is a lot like that. And there are these moments and situations and hurts and pains of our life, and we just stick them in a box, and we take them with us into every job and every friendship and every relationship, and we just keep packing it up and moving on and packing it up and moving on, and we just don't know what to do. And sooner or later, we have to stop and unpack the box. And the series has been about what's in the box and what do I do with what's in the box. So what we want to do today is kind of pick up in that story where we've been, and um, we're going to start here. You ready? What is in you will come out of you, or what is in us will come out of us. Here's what I mean by that. So I got my boy cup, because it's blue, right? And I got my girl cup, because it's pink. And just to be clear, these are peanut butter and peanut M&Ms, because everybody knows those are the two best kinds. I mean, pretzels? Caramel? I mean, really? What were you thinking, M&M? But anyway, this is not a plug for M&Ms. I make no money for this advertisement. Okay, so... Share the video. Let's see what happens, all right? We'll raise funds for our next campus. Okay, here we go. So what is in you is what will come out of you. And when it comes out of you the most is when you are pressured the greatest. So whether you have joy and happiness and celebration stored up in you, or whether you have pain and shame and sin stored up in you, sooner or later, what's in you is going to spill out of you. And it almost always will spill out in those tense moments. Do you remember that time when you were a kid and your dad was outside working on the whatever? He was working in the yard, he was working on the car, whatever it was. And you went out to talk to dad, but when you went out there, like, he snapped at you. And you're like, I just came out to see what you were doing, dad. Like, I have no idea what happened. Or you went up to your mom and you said, oh, mom, can I have that toy? And you were at the grocery store and all of a sudden, like, like, what just happened? I don't know. Like, she just hung up the phone and yelled at me. Like, where did that come from? Now, everybody who's become a parent knows what this looks like, right? You look at your kid, and your kid does something one day, and you're like, where did that come from? And your spouse goes, really? You don't know where they got that? <laughs> because what is in you eventually will come out of you. And when it comes out of you the most is when life is pressured. When two people are having conflict, when there's stress at work, and all of a sudden it's like, ah! I broke it that time. <laughs> at least it made it to the third service. And sooner or later, what's inside just spills out. Can't help it. Didn't plan on it. Just kind of happens. In fact, some of you are what I like to call knapsackers. I don't know if you know what a knapsacker is. It, it's, some people call it a fanny pack. 
I think it's got all these other names like European handbag. We want to make them sound cool. They're the lamest thing in the world and everybody knows it. But that those little things go around your waist, right? They clip or they tie or whatever in the back and you got the little pack. See? <laughs> I got one of those. I love those things. <laughs> we all had one at one point. So, but what I joke with couples who are getting married or whatever, knapsackers, some of you, you know what I'm talking about. What you do is you just keep shoving stuff in there until you can't zip it one day and you don't realize it, but it broke and you go to stick the next thing in and all of a sudden it's like... And stuff spills out everywhere. And some of you are like that relationally, emotionally. You don't deal with things. You don't talk about things. You just keep shoving it down. You just keep putting more in and putting more in. Then all of a sudden, like one day, you can't take it more. It's like, I'm like the whole cup just comes flying out all over everybody. You know what I'm talking about? Some of you are like, he's arguing to you, huh? <laughs> so what do we do about it? Well, Jesus says this. Matthew chapter 6. Matthew chapter 6. Jesus says, no good tree bears bad fruit. Nor does a bad tree bear good fruit. Each tree is recognized by its own fruit. People do not pick figs from thorn bushes or grapes from briars. A good man brings good things out of the good stored up in his heart. And an evil man brings evil things out of the evil stored up in his heart. For the mouth speaks what the heart is full of. You know what? That last part, as a pastor now, almost 20 years, man, I've seen this over and over and over again, and I've gotten really good at, at listening to people's words and hearing their hearts to the point where I can't shut it off sometimes, and I'm really annoying to talk to. But what happens for most of us is we think to ourselves, oh, I know what I'll do. I'll put a filter on the top so that what's inside won't come out. You know when you do this, right? You're hanging around your parents. You're like, oh, I won't use that language in front of my parents, or I won't tell those jokes in front of my pastor, or I won't whatever it is. And then what happens is something happens, and it's like, oh, well, that filter didn't work so good after all, did it? I mean, like, maybe not as much came out, but sooner or later, what's inside comes out. And your words betray you all the time, whether you mean them to or not. And somebody asks how you're doing, and you say something, you're like, oh, man, was that safe to say that? And you tell too much, or you let others in, you didn't mean to. Or you say something racist, and you're like, I'm not a racist. Really? You really think all people with that skin color do that thing, all of them? Really? You don't think that's racist at all? Or you tell that joke, that one you swore you'd never tell again in front of that person you swore you'd never tell it to because what's inside sooner or later comes out. So what if there was a way? What if there was a way to take all of the hurt and all of the pain and all of the sin that's added up and have a different pattern? What if there was a way to actually deal with it? Because I believe that God has an answer for this problem, and he gave it to us. That's what I want to walk through today. So we're going to pick up uh, where we left off with this family we've been following, and their name um, is, is, well, we're picking up today really with a guy, uh, Jacob, and his kids. But let's go back a little bit, because you've got to get the history to get where we are today. So there's a man named Abraham. He's a good man. He's a great man. We talked to him all through January. If you're watching online or maybe you're visiting the room, go back and listen to our January-February series. Abraham, God calls and says, Abraham, I want to bless all nations through you. Through you, all nations will be blessed. But Abraham is an old man, like in his 90s, and has no kids. So finally, um, he decides, he and his wife Sarah, we're going to take matters into our own hands. And they, he ends up um, having a child with his wife's servant, which is very common in that day to have like a maidservant. And so he ends up having a child there, and, and his name is Ishmael. And God says, no, 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 see, I'm not, I'm not doing this thing I told you about through him. I am going to bless you, even in your old age, you're going to be the father of many. And so finally, Abraham has Isaac. He and Sarah have Isaac. Now here's the thing, Isaac, or Abraham treats Isaac different than Ishmael. If you don't keep up with the names, don't worry about it. I'll make the point clear, all right? So just stick with me. 
Isaac eventually has two kids also, and their names are Esau and Jacob. Except Isaac treats Esau different than Jacob. He treats him like the favored son, kind of like his dad did to him. Except God's promise of blessing didn't go to Esau. He wasn't a good man. It went to Jacob. Jacob now ends up getting married to a woman, but he gets tricked by his father-in-law, and he ends up marrying both of the sisters, both of this man's daughters. That's a broken family no matter what we're talking about. But then both of those daughters or the sisters, his wives, encourage him to have children with their maidservants, just like his father did or grandfather did, I guess, through, through uh, Abraham and Sarah. So now we have the birth of the tribes of Israel. Did you know that's where they came from? You would think at some point along the way, somebody would learn the lesson. Hey, you know, I'm treating my kids the way that my dad treated me and the way that his dad treated him. But nobody's getting it. So consequently, Jacob treats one of his children different than all of the others. Let's take a look at that. Genesis now, chapter 37, Genesis 37, verse 3. Here's how it goes. Now, Israel loved Joseph. Israel is Jacob. God changed his name. We talked about that a couple weeks ago. Israel loved Joseph more than any of his other sons because he had been born to him in his old age. And he made an ornate robe for him. Now, most of us have heard of this, right? That Technicolor dream coat. This is a little different. Um, it's quite possible, just to your mind for a second, right? From everything you ever learned at VBS or church or plays on Broadway. Um, quite possible there wasn't even color in this coat. Oh, I know, imagine such a thing. Highly likely that the robe actually was just a long robe made of a very nice material and a very finely made. The point is the same. It doesn't matter if it's colored or technicolored or just a really nice robe. The point is this. He loved Joseph, treasured Joseph, delighted in Joseph more than the brothers. And when those brothers saw that their father loved him more than any of them, they hated him and could not speak a kind word to him. The brothers have become so filled with hate and spite that they can't even say something nice. You ever meet that person? Do you ever meet that person who, no matter what happens, no matter who walks in the room, Brad Pitt in his heyday walks in the room, they go, he's not all that. That girl walks in the room and she looks beautiful and, and that lady goes, I'll bet she, fill in the blank. Or whatever it is. It's the guy driving the car. It's the person with the house. It's the athlete on TV. He's not the greatest of all time. Everybody knows. He's not even that good. Did you know he threw a blah interception? Did you know he missed that shot? Did you know? It's like they can't just look at something and say, that is great. That is amazing. That was wonderful. Because something in here is irritated. Now, in this situation, you kind of wonder to yourself, if only, if only Jacob had loved all of his sons equally. And some of you have that wound from your own parents. Some of you are creating that wound in your children. I haven't said this in any other service. I don't know why. I just feel the prompting of the Spirit. So maybe this is for somebody special in this room right now. Maybe this is for you. Did you know when you become a step-parent, you cannot fill the shoe of the parent. You can't but you are filling in a gap. And to treat all of your children differently 
And does that honor your heavenly father? Does he treat you differently? Then he treats everybody else in the room. I mean, love is love. It is. So moving on, now that I just dropped a grenade in the room. This is important to us because what's happening in the story is twofold. Number one, there's a hatred stirring up in these brothers towards Joseph. Jacob is feeding it in the way that he treats him. And consequently, the whole story is about to implode. But in addition to that, Joseph isn't making his life any easier by the way he's acting. So in Genesis chapter 37, Joseph has two crazy experiences. One, he goes to bed at night, he has a dream in the middle of the night that he's out in the field with his brothers and they're all working on grain. And their brother's sheaths of grain rise up and bow down to his sheath of grain that rises up and stands there. And he wakes up the next day and he can't wait to tell his brothers, you're never gonna believe the dream I had last night. It was so vivid. You all bowed down to me or your grain bowed down to mine. Can you imagine how well that would go with your brothers and sisters? If you're not a single child and you have any family, could you imagine waking up the next day and telling your siblings, I dreamt last night that you're going to bow down to me. It was amazing. Why don't we practice? (laughs) Then he goes on and he has a second dream. And in the next dream, the sun and the moon and these stars, the exact number of his family bow down to him. It is amazing. He wakes up and he tells his whole family, you're going to believe it. This guy has serious dreams of grandeur. Except for the dreams in the story really are from God. The problem is Joseph doesn't know how to handle, he's like 17 years old, right? What 17-year-old does? He doesn't know how to handle all these blessings and good things happening. So he's prideful and he's arrogant. And in addition to that, Jacob doesn't know how to parent him. He spoils him. He dotes over him. He's different. He's special. And all of this comes together to ruin a family. I love the way this guy in this commentary, The Living Dream, says this. There's no doubt Jacob, that's the dad, must take responsibility for his poor parenting. A parent who spoils a child is always acting in his or her own interests, not those of the child. And the outcome will ultimately, almost always, be misery for the child. But the text does not invite us to exonerate Joseph. On the contrary, it invites us to see Joseph as the curtain rises on his story as a spoiled and arrogant individual. He is a brat. Can you say that in a Bible commentary? I don't know. We did, though. Yet, it is this Joseph, the flawed and muddled individual, who sometimes inadvertently proves to be the recipient and the instrument of God's grace. This is the part. This is part of the point of the story. You and I are part of the story of God. Whether it's the things that we've done to sin against God and others, or whether it's the things that others have done to sin against us. Somehow, in God's majesty and grace, he chooses broken and flawed men and women just like us. And somehow, in God's sovereign grace, he is literally taking all of these circumstances of life and working them together for his good. And our good. This is why, by the way, everything that I've just talked about is why this coming Saturday, I realize it's Mother's Day week and a lot of people are busy, but we're doing part two of our parent seminar and we're going to talk about discipline. You know that thing nobody knows what to do with and how many times do I have to yell at them before I'm allowed to spank them? Not discipline. We're going to talk about discipline. The word discipline, the root of the word discipline is the word disciple, to teach. So from nine to noon this coming Saturday, We're going to sit and talk about that. I've got my friend Rick Sudsbury joining me, and we're just going to share from our life, from our experiences, from what we've learned, from what we know. 
I highly recommend you come, but the only thing is we're out of capacity right now for kids' ministry. So if you have a child, you need to find childcare, and just say, I need to be there. This Saturday night at noon, I promise you will not regret it, but it will change your life, and it'll be hard, but you will be blessed because you don't end up like Jacob. So let's come back to our story. What do we do with all of this? Well, here's the thing I need you to get, really. This is the, the crux of everything. What comes out of us will reproduce itself in others. So here's what I mean. If you're bringing out pain and anger and shame, it will reproduce itself in other people around you. What I mean is this. So I had a friend once who had this private sin that nobody knew about. And consequently, it was changing the way that he parented his family. Because he couldn't do certain things in his parenting with his own family because he knew in his heart he didn't have the moral ground to stand on. So even though he couldn't see it at the time, it was ruining him. And it was ruining those around him that he loved the most. Now, the good thing is God was faithful. God was faithful to him, and God was faithful to his family because God is good and God is faithful. But see, we often think that if it's down there, we can just hide it and bury it and whatever, cover it up, and nobody will know about it. We'll just deal with it some other day. But we do not realize how much it changes the way we interact with people. I'll never forget, there was this one time, and I'll be as vague as I know how to be for this story's sake because there would be no shame on anybody else. But there was this moment in my life where it was Christmas time. Remember, the family had gathered, and there was this explosive moment that took place. It was ugly. And I'm sitting there going, oh, I don't know what to do right now. This is weird. Anybody had that family moment at Christmas? Yeah, okay. So, and one of the family members looked at everybody else and said, I decided a long time ago nobody was ever going to treat me like that again. And I went, oh, wow. That explains a whole bunch of other moments in my life in interacting with that person. But I had no idea they felt that way. I had no idea that things had happened in their life that dictated the way they were going to live certain ways. And every time we ran up against certain boundaries together in our relationship, and now I understood. See, this is the way it works. You, what's deep inside us, the way we're living out of those wounds, we're either living out of them with healing, we're either living out of them washed in the blood of Jesus Christ and learning a new path, or we're just living in them, and sooner or later they spill out and leaves everybody else to go, I don't know what to do with what I'm experiencing. And everybody else will feel unsafe in the world as a result. And then go back three, four weeks, then they start living out of their controlling behaviors, trying to figure out how to manage the world again. So what happens next in Joseph's story is very similar to what happens in our story. So uh, Jacob sends Joseph out. He would often send him out to check on his brothers. In fact, chapter 37 early, we're told one time Joseph goes out, checks on his brothers, and he comes back and he's like, hey, the bros aren't really working that hard. And it's part of the reason they don't love him that much. Like, really? Why'd you go telling us? You're the little brother here. So Jacob again sends Joseph out and Joseph can't find him. He finally tracks him down and we'll pick up here Genesis 37 verse 18. But they, the brothers, saw him, Joseph, so they saw him in the distance and before Joseph reached them, they plotted to kill him. Here comes that dreamer, they said to each other. Come now, let's kill him and throw him into one of these cisterns and say that a ferocious animal devoured him. Then we'll see what comes of his dreams. They're a little bit ticked. So now one of the brothers, the oldest one, Reuben, he ends up saving Joseph's life. He comes up with a plan. I know what we'll do. We'll, we'll, we'll come up with something else. So when Joseph shows up, 
He spares his life, but he, the guys beat him up, rough him up, and they throw him in a cistern, like this big thing that was in the ground to catch water, an empty cistern, not the right season for it to be filled with water. And they throw him in there. Then they take this technicolor, long, non-colorful robe, whatever it is, and they kill an animal, and they cover the robe with blood. They take the robe back to dad. They say, dad, we don't know what happened. We found this robe. It doesn't look good. And sure enough, dad looks at the robe and assumes his son is dead. Meanwhile, they took Joseph and they sold him to a traveling nomadic group of Ishmaelites. And that's just interesting in the story because that would have been like great uncle or uncle or whatever that would have been. I didn't do the math. It would be back. So the Ishmaelites, remember Ishmael and Isaac, the two sons. So now they sold him to distant family. And those Ishmaelites take Joseph into Egypt and they sell him as a slave, a slave. And it's terrible for a while. Joseph gets up every day, works hard. But here's the thing, and you gotta get this. See, there will come a moment in your life when other people's sin will hurt you and wound you so deeply and your story will not make sense to you. And you will wonder to yourself, where is God in all of this? Has he given up on me? Does he even care? Is he not paying attention? Is he not engaged? God, where are you? See, most of us, most of us believe that if we just pray, God has to do something. If we get baptized, God will do something. But the reality is most of us experience God very differently. Most of us experience God very similar to Joseph. So he goes into Egypt. His life is over. He's cut off from his family. Everybody thinks he's dead and he's a slave. Joseph, though, does not lose his faith, but hangs on to it. So he works hard for Potiphar. Eventually, he's elevated to the leader over Potiphar's house. But one day, Potiphar's wife is looking at this young Joseph. She's like, man, he's got it going on. His skin is baked out in the sun. He's cut. He's fit from all the hard work. He's smart. He's trustworthy. And one day when he's in the house checking on things in the house, she seduces him. And he looks at her and fascinating. He looks at her and says, I can't do this to my God. Wow, not to Potiphar, but to my God. Joseph, aren't you more angry at God for what he allowed to happen to you? Joseph has a right perspective. Even though I don't always understand God's hand, I trust his heart. I know that he's good, and I know that he's for me, and I don't understand where he's going next, but I know that much. Sure enough, uh, Potiphar in the, Potiphar's wife, in the moment of trying to seduce him, grabs onto his garment, and Joseph beelines it out the door. He either runs out the door naked or in his skibbies. Either way, it raises some questions. You know, naked guy running through, a leader of Potiphar's house. Everybody's like, uh, we better go find out what that's all about. And they go in the house, and there's Potiphar's wife. She's got the garment, and hell hath no fury like a Potiphar's wife scorn. And she's like, oh, he tried to take advantage of me. You can read into that all you want. So everybody goes chasing after Joseph. Meanwhile, Joseph's innocent. He's doing the right thing, and he gets thrown in prison. What in the world, God? I mean, are these dreams earlier about sheaths and stars and moons, are they from you, or are they not? And here's the reality. When life is hard and painful, what is in you is what's going to come out of you. So what's inside Joseph? Well, honestly, Joseph, like us, he's got to work through it. But at the deepest core of Joseph is faith. I don't know how God's going to do it. I only know that he is. The worst part of Joseph's story for me and for you is that God's not speaking. 
We read the story and we don't hear God. No angel shows up. The Holy Spirit never says a word. We don't see this moment where Joseph says, yes. And then in the middle of the night, God said to me, and we see that all over the Bible. We see Peter and Paul and others in the New Testament. Angels show up to comfort them when they're in prison unfairly. Not at all in Joseph's story. Joseph's just left with the questions, God, where are you? And I love, again, this commentary says this. As a rule, in this part of Scripture, those who trust in God do so despite a dearth of encouragement to do so. This is part of the great value of the story of Joseph for the church today. There is a tendency in some contemporary church circles to expect the hand of God to be prominent as it was in the life of Abraham, to whom God spoke and appeared repeatedly. Among Christian disciples today, miracles are sought daily, answers to prayer anticipated keenly, and gifts of the Spirit celebrated rapturously. But for many believers, dramatic experiences of the presence of God are the precious exception rather than the rule. Mostly, God acts in hidden ways. His purpose is mostly evident in retrospect. The life of faith mostly involves trust and a presence of God, which is elusive. So is that the end of our story? By no means. Because it's in those darkest, hardest, loneliest moments when we're faced with all the stuff that life has brought us that we find our God is most present. I believe it was this morning on my Bible app, those of you who use the, the, the Life Church Bible app, the verse popped up, I think it was Psalm 34, 18. God is near to the broken heart. See, when you are in your hardest moment, God is not far from you. Will we trust him? What are we to do with all this? I don't like three-point sermons, but I really want to give you three pieces of advice, and I believe you have to have all three to figure out what to do with this stuff. Number one, number one, you've got to make peace with God through repentance and forgiveness. Here's what I mean by that. The Bible is crystal clear that the stuff inside our cup is not simply from what others have done to us. But every time we sin against somebody else, we hurt them, and consequently, we hurt God directly. This is a hard concept to get, but when you get it, you're, getting, you're starting to get onto the journey, the road, the path of faith. This is huge. Because the first person you sin against is not the person you hurt. The first person you sin against is God. Because you were created in his image, and he's the creator, so he's the rule maker. This is why David, when he committed adultery, and he writes his prayer of repentance, he prays and he says, God, against you and you alone have I sinned. Now, anybody in the room who knows David's story goes, that doesn't seem real fair there, David. I mean, you murdered a man to cover your sin. You don't think you sinned against him? You committed adultery. You don't think you sinned against them? What about your children? Your wife? Like, you don't think there's any other sin against anybody else. But what David's trying to get to is what we have to get to, and that is when I have transgressed the heart of God by hurting somebody else, the heart of God is first. It was against him first that I sinned. And so what I must do is turn to him first for forgiveness and mercy. And as long as I'm hanging on in pride or in arrogance that I don't need a savior and I don't need forgiven because what I've done is not that bad, then I can never have unleashed or unlocked for me the forgiveness and the mercy of God. So that's why some of you, I know you, you come to church or you watch online and we'll see you a few times this year. And you're just hoping for that little like, injection of faith and you'll leave for a while and going right back to life. 
But what you don't realize is you are missing out on God, the greatest blessing for you. As I was trying to get to last week, in case you missed it, see, God has placed in all of us this desire for him, but we try to fill that desire with everything and anything else, and when it doesn't come fulfilled, we get frustrated. But God has built you in such a way that you will fill your greatest desires with him, and when you do that, you become fulfilled. But as long as we turn away from God, we'll keep searching after little things and other things to try to fill that gap. And when we do, it hurts the heart of God. That's the root of sin right there. But all we need to do is turn to him and find life. In fact, John says in 1 John that all we have to do is confess our sins and he is faithful and true and he will forgive us. You mean it's that easy? Yes. This isn't a get out of hell free card, boom, I said, I'm sorry, you owe me, God. No, this is Jesus died on the cross to redeem you, to give you life, to take all the junk in your cup and start over again. I say, you give me all that stuff, all of it, and I'll give you an empty cup and I'll fill the cup up with me. It's a powerful transformational moment. It's a new beginning. There are two Greek words for new, kainos and naos. And the one that's used in this passage is the one that means that God will take the old and make it new. See, this brand new, like, hey, I just got this at the store. It's fresh off the thing. It's brand new. No, no, no. God's saying, I'm going to take your life. I'm going to clean out the junk, and I'm going to make it as if it's new. It'll be new to you and new to me, new. Here's one of those passages, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17. It says this, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. The old has gone. The new is here. God took the old, cleaned it out, and filled it up with something completely new in Jesus Christ. Yeah, you can clap for God. And it gets unlocked by turning to him and saying, I need you. It's my Lord and my Savior. Forgive me, redeem me, restore me, but God, don't leave me. Secondly, secondly, we have got to give freely what God has given freely. Here's what I mean by that. Jesus actually tells many, many stories along these lines. I don't have time to go through all of them. But at one point, he tells a story about a man who has a massive debt. And his boss, he raised his debt. It was massive. He was going to kill the guy. It's what he deserved. Lock him up in prison. Lock his family up. Don't let anybody out for generations until the debt's paid off. But then the guy begs him, please, 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 would you forgive me? And the man says, you know what? That's fine. Not only will I release you, I'll release all of your debt. I've erased it all. Go start over. But then that man goes away and he has a servant and the servant owes him just a little bit amount of money and he goes to that servant and he says, you know what, you owe me, pay me. The guy's like, please, 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 sir. He says, no. In fact, lock him up and lock all his family up until he's paid off his debt. And the point of the story is really obvious, but Jesus is telling the story saying, how in the world, how in the world do you not go release somebody else from what they did to you given what you did to me? And part of it is because we think what we've done is not as bad as what everybody else did. See, we want justice for everybody else and mercy for ourselves, right? That's what I want. I want God to hold you accountable for all the dumb things you did and I want him to let me off the hook. That's what I want God to do and then my life will be blessed and your life will suck and I'll say, see, you shouldn't have done that. I won't literally say that, I promise. But the truth is we all need mercy. We all need mercy. 
And the only way for us to find the life that we've been searching for is to give freely to others what God has given so freely to us. What did you do to earn God's mercy? Tell me. I don't know why God keeps bringing Mormons into my life, but I just ended up on a plane a week or so ago and we talked for over an hour and a half till the guy in front of us yelled at us because he was mad we wouldn't stop talking about God. I think he had something in his cup. But anyway... (laughs) If any of you are Mormon in here or watching online, I love you. Please know that. I do. It's just that the gospel you believe is not the same gospel as the one we believe. Because we believe that God became man, lived the perfect life, then he calls us to be free in Jesus Christ. And the only thing I have to do to have a new beginning is to give him my life and say, that's it. I don't have to earn it, I don't have to buy it, I don't have to become good enough or gooder enough or goodest enough. I just have to receive it. But then if that's all I had to do to get it, then how dare I charge you for it? Yesterday I gave away a lawnmower uh, to a gentleman in our church and he said, are you sure you don't want any money for this? I said, brother, you need to know, somebody gave it to me. Like It wouldn't really be fair for me to charge you for it. It was a gift. I'm just paying it forward. He's like, wow. See, that's forgiveness. Let's take a look at Joseph's story. So as the story progressive, um, Joseph is in prison, and God gives him some dreams, and in his dreams, he uh, actually gives Pharaoh some dreams, I apologize, and in Pharaoh's dreams, Pharaoh's terrified because there's these really scary images coming to Pharaoh, and he doesn't know where they're coming from, but Joseph gets pulled out of prison to interpret the dreams, and Pharaoh says, you know what, Joseph? There's something special about you. I'm gonna put you in charge of fixing the problem. Here's the problem. There's gonna be a season of plenty for a few years, but then in a few years, there's gonna be a terrible, terrible famine on the land. Joseph comes up with a phenomenal plan. We're gonna scale everything back. We're gonna keep the plenty for the next few years. We're gonna store it up so in the seasons of famine, we'll divvy out the food and make sure that everybody has food. What this did was it consolidated power in the world to Egypt. So Egypt was already really powerful, but now it made it even worse because all the local surrounding nations going through the famine had to come to Egypt and they would trade them. You want food? Fine, here's some food. Give us your land, give us your stuff. And when it was all said and done, this is how Egypt became powerful, which leads, by the way, to the exit another story for another time. But Joseph is now a position of power, one of the most powerful in all of Egypt, doling out the resources, and his own family shows up and they don't recognize him. They think he's dead or a slave. They would have no reason to imagine this really powerful man with all the food is their brother. And so after some cat and mouse games that go back and forth, Joseph decides to bless them and to take care of them. But then we find ourselves in chapter 50 and Jacob has died, the dad has died, and the brothers are a little bit worried. Let's pick up here, Genesis chapter 50, verse 15. When Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, what if Joseph holds a grudge against us and pays us back for all the wrongs we did to him? They're a little anxious, aren't they? What if after all we put into Joseph's cup, it's finally time. Dad's out of the way. There's nobody holding me back. I'm gonna give you what you deserve. And they look at him and they say, Please forgive us, the servants of the God of your father. And I love this. I don't have this verse on the screen. It says, and Joseph wept. He saw the actions of his brothers, and he lost it, and he looked at them, and he says, verse 19. Sorry, yeah, verse 19, 19. 
don't be afraid. Am I in the place of God? In other words, what he's saying is, who am I to judge your actions? I'm just a man. I got plenty of junk in my cup. You got plenty of junk in your cup. Who am I to judge you? Don't be afraid. I'm not here to punish you. I'm not here to crush you. I'm not here to hurt you. I'm not here to shame you. In fact, he goes on. Listen to this. You intended to harm me, but God intended it for good to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. What would it be like to have that kind of faith? It's not to say that the person who did evil to you didn't do evil to you. They absolutely did. It's just that everything, imagine God is like this master chess player. Everything that Satan intended to crush you with through other people, God intends to use for the shaping of your heart, your soul for him. I promise you this. God will not waste a moment of your life if you'll let him. He will not waste a pain, not one. He will redeem it. In fact, Joseph goes on and he says, so then don't be afraid. I will provide for you and your children. And he reassured them and spoke kindly to them. Two things you have to notice here. Number one, not only does Joseph relieve them of the debt, he takes personal responsibility for them. This is what's transformational about the gospel. When Jesus shows up, it says, love not just your friends, not just your family. Everybody does that. Love your enemies because your heavenly father does that. It's a game changer. See, if you've never experienced that kind of love, that's because you've not been to very many healthy churches. And there are a lot of broken ones. And even here at Kingsway, there are plenty of us struggling to live this principle. But I'll tell you what, we believe that this is true of Jesus, so therefore it's true of us. Then notice the last thing he said there. And he reassured them. He spoke kindly to them. You remember all the way back, chapter 37? The brothers hated him so much because of the junk and their box that what did they do? They couldn't even speak kindly to them. You think that's an accident in the text? They want you to know the difference between Joseph and the brothers. Joseph, in spite of his pain and his wounds, has said, I will encourage you. The brothers and their pain and their, their wounds have said, I will hurt you. And that's the difference between grace, forgiveness, mercy, and woundedness, and hate, and evil. Which one will you be? Now, I know the debate that rages. Do I have to forgive somebody if they never ask me? And I think it's a great philosophical debate. I only know this. You will never be free until you do. Did God wait until you asked for forgiveness to die on a cross? Now, you could say that forgiveness wasn't applied until you asked. You'd absolutely be right. Everybody is not saved just because Jesus died. That's called universalism. The Bible doesn't teach that. But Jesus provided the way for restoration when all you needed to do was receive his pursuit of you. Imagine if you loved your enemies that way. Imagine. So about a year ago, um, I was mad at God and some people who've hurt me in my life. And I was on a sabbatical. And part of the sabbatical came out because um, I think our elders wisely discern, that's not a great place right now. Um, you probably should take a sabbatical. So I went on a sabbatical. And part of my sabbatical, I went to Peru. 
And uh, there's a lot to say about that. I don't have time. But on one part of this trip, I climbed something called Rainbow Mountain. If you've never heard of it, Rainbow Mountain, Peru, here's what it looks like. It's not a great picture. You can't really see from there. If you look it up on your phone later, you will see uh, many colors. So you start it right around 10,000 feet, which is a really high altitude, in case you don't know that, like two miles high. And you hike to 15,000 feet right here. And this picture is taken from up here on the next peak is at 15,500 feet. And this is just a really colorful mountain in the middle of the Andes Mountains. It's a four and a half mile hike up, four and a half mile hike back. It's extremely grueling and I thought I was going to die. A lot of stories from this trip that I'll tell you someday as we go. But on this particular trip, I had a purpose. So the day leading up to the day before, the night before, and actually the morning of, I pulled out a journal and I just wrote at the top of the page a, a situation or the name of a person and I just wrote down thing by thing underneath that I was mad and hurt and junk I'd been carrying around and I did not want to let go of. Junk that I was not ready to forgive and release. Stuff that I was mad about and felt justified in my anger. But I knew it had to stop because my prayer life had become a joke. I'd gotten to the point where all I would do in prayer was just say, you know, you know, I'd pray for everybody else. You know, God, bless my wife, bless my kids, blah, blah, blah. Yeah, and uh, okay, well, I get paid to do this, so I'll see you tomorrow. I mean, it wasn't that bad, but it wasn't far off. And I'm only saying that, that hopefully you don't lose faith in me. I don't want you to go where I went. I want you to not go where I went. This was the day I decided I was going to change it all. So after this grueling hike to the top where God said many things, you probably can't see it in this picture, but if you look online later, like here and here and over here and here, there's all these little rock structures everywhere, little monuments that people build. And I took all these pages and I wrote out a prayer of forgiveness. And one by one, I prayed over them, Lord, I forgive and release this person. Lord, I forgive and release this situation. Lord, I forgive and release and I ripped them all out of my journal, and I took that top page, I took a picture of it, and I wrapped it up, and I stuck it in one of those rocks, and I buried it in there. And I told God before I came down the mountain, I said, God, anytime anybody asks about those situations, anytime anybody brings up any of the stuff from the past, I'm just going to look at them and say, you know what, I left that somewhere over the rainbow mountain. <laughs> and I've literally, some of you, I've literally used that phrase multiple times, and people look at me like I have two heads, that's fine. Now, here's the thing. I needed a marker moment. I needed a moment where I didn't just say, forgive people. I needed a moment where I said, this is the day that I forgive. And I would always look back. This is why in the Old Testament people build monuments all the time. I needed a day, and maybe you do too. Maybe you need a day, a moment in time where you say, that's it. Today's the day. Today's the day. Today's the day. Last thing, last thing, and make this very quickly. You've got to start filling your cup with something else besides the junk. Do good. Do good. And watch God redeem all the things from your life for your good and his glory. Do good. Don't do good to be saved. Your cup is empty. Do good so that you're putting good in your heart, like Jesus said, so that you're pouring out of, pulling out of you the good stored up in you. Paul says it this way. We'll close with this. Galatians chapter six. Do not be deceived. God cannot be mocked. A man reaps what he sows. Whoever sows to please their flesh, from the flesh will reap destruction. Whoever sows to please the spirit, from the spirit will reap eternal life. Let us not become weary in doing good. At the proper time, we will reap a harvest if we do not give up. Therefore, as we have opportunity, let us do good to all people, especially those who belong to the family of believers.
This is not Christian karma, but it's pretty close. The whole idea here is whatever you're putting in that cup is going to come out, so put in good, keep putting in good, keep putting in good, keep putting in good, and let God spill it out all over everybody around you. Here's where we're going to end today, right now. We're going to sing a song, and we'll be done with our service. Two things. Number one, the believer in the room. Some of you believers in the room have been deeply hurt and wounded by other people. And it's time to make today the day you release them. It's time. This may still take you hours or weeks or months or years to work through. I get it. There's been plenty of situations in my life that God's spirit had to lead me through, but it always begins with an initial decision. Today, I forgive you. And I start living out of forgiveness instead of out of punishment. It's a game changer. But number two, and perhaps more importantly, some of you, and even some of you watching online or listening later, you've never made that initial decision to receive God's forgiveness. So every day you're trying to earn yourself or become enough for somebody else. You're trying to overcome your wounds by working harder, and you'll never get there. There's only one way to be right with God. It's to surrender. To finally stand up and say, God, here I am. I don't know what it means, but I need you as my Savior, and I need you as my Lord. So God, here's my life. Here it is. Lead me. Lead me. And if you're ready today to make that decision, why put it off? All of your sins can be forgiven like this if you're ready to come to Christ in faith and say, I believe in you. I need you. Help me. Lead me. Guide me. Love me. Be a good, good father to me. What we're going to do is we're going to sing. And while we're singing, I'm just going to ask for you to go to my left, your right. We got some people over there. They just want to tell you about that. And guess what? Maybe today's the day you need to go all in with Jesus and get baptized. Why do we get baptized? So we can mark a day. Just like I did on Rainbow Mountain, maybe you need to mark today. Today's the day I go all in with God. Guess what? We got swimsuits. We got towels. We got hair dryers. We even got drinks in the back. We've got everything you need. You didn't have to show up prepared. You just have to show up and say, today is my day, and I'm not leaving without it. Let's all stand. I'll pray, and we'll sing. Father God, move in this place. God, don't let us leave the way we came in. God, if people came in today and they're still carrying around this junk in their lives and it's spilling out everywhere, God, today, today, for those who've not yet surrendered to you, God, let today be the day. They drive a stake in the ground. They go all in. They get baptized. They unite with you and they start a new life in Christ. But God, for those in this room who are believers but are still carrying around hurt and baggage and frustration, God, I pray today's the day that they begin to forgive. And God, may you give them both the courage and the strength to live out of that forgiveness. In Jesus' name.